Hey, Josh and Sherwood. What's up, man? Uh, did you hear about the lizard that was not able to change colors? No. It had a reptile dysfunction. <laughs> nice. Thank you. Way to set the tone. It's <laughs> a, a good way to start the podcast. <laughs> set the tone. Oh, man. I like it. Hey, so uh, Tuesday night on the MCP. It's Tuesday, right? Yeah, no, it still is. Yeah. Still Tuesday night. And uh, we have uh, an excellent long distance guest with us today, Mr. Sherwood Gibson. How are you doing today, Sherwood? I'm doing well. How about yourselves? Man, I'm doing good. I'm doing much better now that I'm on the podcast talking to you and not working the grind of my daily job. Same here. Nice. Yeah, definitely appreciate that. And Sherwood, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Like, uh, you're, you, you've got a history in bikes. Uh, just give us like the, the 15 second. Why are we talking today? I like bikes. Yes. I know how to make stuff. Therefore I know how to make bikes. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And you, uh, you started, uh, and ran for quite some time, a little company called Ventana bikes. Yes. Yeah. Ventana mountain bikes. USA was the technical term. Ventana Mountain Bikes USA. And where were you guys based out of? Sacramento area. Sacramento. California. Right on, man. So uh so you I guess we'll start out with this, man. Sherwood, do you have a nickname? No. You're the first person I've ever met with the name Sherwood. What's the origin of that first name? Any idea? No, not really. So my brother's name, believe it or not, is Forrest. Okay. Wow. But he came first down the pipe. So So it wasn't like Sherwood Forrest. Mom and dad either smoked some weed or did something. I don't know. <laughs> Wait, Sherwood you know, Forrest, we were, is that we it's like Robin Hood? That's yeah, Robin, Robin Hood, right? Hood. Okay. Well, you got your nickname, bro. <laughs> Robin Hood? Yeah. But yeah, but uh, Forrest came first. So it's for Forrest Sherwood. I know. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah still, so same. I'll tell you one. I sort of had a nickname when I was a kid. Yeah. My brother, when he was born, his nickname was Woody. But then when I was born, then my nickname was Woody, but only my cousins call me that. So, so nobody really knows me as Woody. So it's a family nickname. Kind of. Yeah. So I can always tell, you know, the provenance of, you know, who was around me at what time for. It's yeah. so funny. We've had several yeah. people on this podcast tell us that like, well, this group of people knows me as this and this mm-hmm. group of people knows me as this. And yeah. that's pretty. Interesting. Yeah. Some people call me wood. Okay. Yeah. It's short, but you know, that doesn't really jive with your uh, erectile dysfunction. Joke. <laughs> Ereptile. 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 Yeah. I, yeah. I'm just taking it to the next level. No, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> And and Sherwood, how many people call you Sherman, man? Because I think I did that in an email or a text exchange we shared this week. I was like half awake, half asleep texting you. And I it put, happens. Yeah, it's my Sherman is more of a popular uh, deviation. Yeah. And I used to be really, uh, you know, I kind of was a love-hate, and I'd come back really hard and aggressive, you know, passive-aggressive about it. But yep. I just let it slide now. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> call me whatever. Yeah, the, the older you get, like, the, <laughs> the, 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 the no, no big deal. So, hey, man, we wanted to talk a little bit, you know, you've got a, a just a vast history uh, in, in bicycle design and bicycle manufacturing and riding bikes. And, and we want to talk and, and hear about your story. Um, really want to hear about like kind of the history of, of Ventana bikes. And is that OK if I refer to it as Ventana bikes or do I have to use that whole long name that you the formal name? 
if you just ignore bikes and say Ventana, that covers it. Punk rock. We'll do All that. Right. All right. So. Otherwise, you got to say Mountain Bikes USA because back in the day, Maine USA meant something. Oh. Oh. Yeah. I think it still I, does, I, I man. Think, I think so, yeah. Yeah. I definitely think yeah, it still Yeah, there's does. been a pretty big uh, egress and embracing of uh, offshore manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, so it's not as important as it was, but I, you know, if we get that way, I'll, I'll tell you some stories. Yeah, my cur- just to put things in perspective for me, my current bike is a is a Gorilla Gravity, which is a which is an all carbon bike made in the United States in Denver, Colorado. Actually, the full supply chains in the United States, so means something to me even today, brother. All right, man. So, uh, so, so when we were talking before, you, uh, you said, you said like your, your high school metal shop was, um, was kind of where things sparked for you. Tell yeah, us, kind tell of, us a little bit about yes. that, man. Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, as will come out in this, you'll find out that I'm pretty much a dorky dude, which is cool. <laughs> um, but I was, uh, you know, a wallflower dorky dude in high school and I didn't know, uh, I hadn't really found anything that I was good at yet. Mm-hmm. And I sort of found my way into metal shop and just found that I really excelled at that. So I was uh, welding in high school metal shop. I was trying to figure out how to build bicycle parts and bicycle frames and things of that sort, um, you know, early on. And it was mostly because I found I was really good at it. And there weren't a ton of people in the high school metal shop that were really good at it. A lot of folks were really good at going back to the arc welding booth and smoking pot <laughs> while they struck an arc so that uh, the teacher didn't know what was going on. Right. So you, you, at that point, so if you were, if you were messing around with bike um, parts, bike components, bike frames, you must've already been into, to bikes at that time. Like what, what's, what, what year are we talking? Unless oh, I'm- I graduated in 78. So metal shop was 76 ish. So this was like just when were, were you doing mountain bikes at this time or this would have no been? I was racing BMX bikes okay because mountain biking really didn't start I mean I guess that's that's about when it started if I'm if I remember correctly is that uh, yeah well it depends you know you could argue that it started in Colorado you could argue there's a lot of places you could argue it started but it, it, there was a lot of pockets of stuff happening in the late seventies for sure okay yeah I always thought the origins came from more the Northern California. Yeah, of course you did. <laughs> yeah, that's the story that uh, some folks told that uh, ignored some of the other folks. So, oh, gotcha. Yeah, sure, and where, that's where were kind you? of the way it is in the bike industry. You're either excelling or you're stabbing somebody in the back. So, mm. well, the winners, yeah. well, the winners write history, right? Isn't that what they say? <laughs> yeah, I think for that's all how. Wars? It works. <laughs> yeah, that makes um, sense. Yeah, revisionist history there. So, um, Sherwood, sure, did you grow up in California in the Sacramento area? Yeah, you did. Okay. So yeah, go ahead, Roseville sure. area. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, racing BMX. So um, what? How did you get involved with that? Was you and your buddies? And what was the scene like uh, back then for BMX? Oh man. Uh, well, the scene like it for BMX back in the day was um, Redline. Uh, anybody remember Redline frames? Uh, Chromoly frames with square backs. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, they came out with a Chromoly fork that nobody in the neighborhood had. And I went down to the bike shop and I forked over whatever money I had to get it. Right on. And then I put it on my frame. And instead of having a hundred millimeter axle or hub spacing on it, it had about a 90 millimeter axle spacing. And I tightened the nuts on and just crimped the fork in. 
till oh, it no. held onto the wheel. Oh no! And, and and it worked great. It you know didn't break, but uh, I definitely uh, load tested that fork early <laughs> on before I actually took air. So <laughs> that was a lesson learned. <laughs> lesson learned on all those different yeah. hub size standards. The, the pictures you have on the Ventana Mountain Bikes USA with the history of uh, number five plate. I, I take it that's you uh, catching. Yeah, that's air. me on the, on a square back with moto mags and. Yeah, the mo- yeah. Mo- moto mags, that's what they're called. Moto mags, yeah, they're aluminum cast wheels. Yeah, they're beautiful. It just really is nostalgic looking at those pictures, you know. Really cool. Hey, um, so so yeah. okay, so so uh so you're you're racing racing and and messing around with your buddies on BMX stuff. You uh found metal shop, found that you had a a, a capability, a skill there. Started started uh messing around with with components and uh and making frames and stuff. What was the first frame that you made? The very first frame I made was a, a bolt on side hack to bolt on to my red line. And my buddy and I started racing side hacks. And then once I realized that I liked that, I made a complete frame and side hack with it. And the funny part about that is I went to a, uh, Machine shop, weld shop in town. Nobody would sell me tubing because I was just this dumb high school kid mm-hmm. with a pocket full of a little bit of money. And yeah. I finally begged a guy to buy me some tubing. And I get the tubing, and I didn't know how to bend it, so I took my gas torch, and I'd heat a little <laughs> ring around it and bend it a little, heat a little ring around it, bend it a little. You know, and it looked a little lumpy, but it got got there. And, and I didn't have any access to expanded metal, so I found an old refrigerator shelf and welded that for the floor. And I used to laugh every time I'd get on it because when I'd zing my foot across it, it'd sound like I was scraping something across the refrigerator shelf. <laughs> you know, it was just really comical because the, the cool side hacks at the time, I think, were Little Johns. All right, brother, you're have, using a term I don't know. What What is a side hack? What a is side this? hack is a sidecar that bolts to the side of a BMX bike. Seriously? And you and a buddy. So the buddy is the monkey, and that was me. Yeah. And uh, and then you go and jump it and ride it. And I've never wait, heard you, of this before. I mean, I, I, obviously I know what a sidecar is, but I've never heard of a of a side hack being used on a bicycle. And now I think I have a new goal. <laughs> to oh, it's it super up. fun. I think we need to bring that back, man. Yeah, that sounds fun. And so you actually jumped you and your friends in a side hack. Oh yeah, jump. <laughs> yeah, race. Yeah, look at that. We'd Here's go to the BMX of- races, and there was other side hack racers and. Dude, and we were leading a race one time and I'm running up this hill, pushing the bike and the second place uh, rider is running over my feet, trying to get me to trip while I was running with the side <laughs> hack. And I jumped back on, made the refrigerator zing and off we went. Yeah, there, I can see where you're talking about the floor now, the refrigerator zing, because it's a platform that the the uh, passenger, if you will, is standing. Yeah, is that correct? The mon- yeah, the monkey. The monkey. And then there's a bar in Sturgis called Sidehack Saloon and Grill. So this is a thing. I have never heard wow. this before, but I do have that 29 inch BMX bike out in the garage. We're gonna. Oh, that, <laughs> I think we're gonna have to make one of those. What a cool idea! Yeah. Oh wow, that's super cool. Okay, so uh, so you're making side hacks. Are those? The, and I'm get, I'm like on a side hack like rabbit hole now, <laughs> Conejo. Um, are those things welded or are they like bolted to the frame? Well, Do, the original ones there were. Uh, like I say, they were called Little Johns, and they were a bolt-on version. So you would take them to your BMX frame, and you would bolt them on and crush your tubes with the bolts if you were an idiot with a wrench. 
uh, like I was. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then I decided to build my own as a one piece deal. And it was welded to the frame because it was built as an integral component. Mm-hmm. Yeah. BMX uh, museum. Here's uh, the little John right here. Oh, wow. I totally want to make yeah, is that. Is that Scott Barrett's museum? Uh, this one shows it's like bmxmuseum.com or something like that. Is that what you like? Gary, oh, okay. Gary, 1981, Gary Little John side hack. Yeah, there you go. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, we'll, we'll put a link to this in the show notes because yeah. uh, I can't be the only cyclist that has never heard of a side hack before. <laughs> All right. So you're making side hacks. How do you get from that to a frame? I don't think we got that far in the story. <laughs> we got like rabbit holed into the, uh, into the side hack. Well, I tripped over a few other rabbit holes and fell in. Uh, before I came back to building bicycle frames seriously. Okay. So I built a side hack that bolted to my red line, and then I built a frame and a side hack all in one piece, and then I stopped building frames for a number of years. Were were you still building at that time, just not frames? I was, you know, learning my metal craft in my dad's garage, trying to keep from burning the house down. (laughs) <laughs> but but you had some formal training as well. I did. Yeah. 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 I, I, so after high school, I took two years of high school metal shop. And then I took five years of metal shop at a junior college mm-hmm. and learned a whole bunch of stuff just basically to build on what I'd learned in high school. And I was really good at it. And I was a dick about it. And that's one rule that I've kind of made throughout my life as I've gotten older is don't be a dick. So I was totally <laughs> violating my my rule of life, huh. turns out. And if I ever see any of those folks from back then, I'm going to have to apologize. Give them a big hug and say, I'm sorry. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay. So, uh, so junior college, five years, honing your craft, getting really good at it. How'd, how'd you end up starting a bike company, brother? Well, I got a, so I was working at a uh, fabrication shop. And I was their best guy. I was doing using every piece of equipment in their shop and building their hard-to-build components and whatnot. And this was 1987-ish. And uh, I got a job at uh, Aerojet uh, Rocket Company as uh, for working for the test area I know, for one of the I know, friends of the I know that company. Shop. I know that company very well. We'll talk about that. Yeah, so, so anyway, so I went out to work in test area. And about a week after I started, a friend of mine from when I was going to college down in San Luis Obispo, I welded airplane control sticks and rudder pedals for a for a company called Underwood Aircraft. And I just welded hundreds and hundreds of parts. But through that, I met someone that knew my capabilities and he knew somebody else in the, down in the uh, Bay Area who wanted to start a bike company. And so he called me up out of the blue. Hey, you want to make some aluminum frames? And at the time, nobody knew about how to heat treat them. Nobody knew how to make water bottle bosses in them. Nobody knew about brake mounts. None of the stuff that's existing now, y'all just had to sort of figure it out. Mm -hmm. Is that because like working with, yeah, sure. Is that because working with aluminum in that way was pretty new at that time? I don't think, well, for, for bikes. Yes. Okay. But for, you know, for industry, no. I mean, you know, air, aircraft industry have been working with aluminum for years and years and years. And, and then for the company you were working for, you were um, developing your skills with the aluminum 
uh, welding and working with aluminum, correct? Well, yeah, aluminum steels, a bunch of other stuff, machining, welding, painting, uh, you name it. I did everything, tube bending. Uh, I, uh, I, I got to where I could use every piece of equipment in their shop. That was just another extension of what I learned in metal shop, which was another extension of what I learned in high school metal shop. So it kept growing. So really, it all built. I built this big, um, long history of making shit, mm-hmm. and then just trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do with life? And I got out to test area, and I was pretty good at doing stuff for out in test area, but I had this other opportunity to make bike frames, and so I said, yeah, sure, I'll figure it out. So I was living in an apartment and I had a little seven by eight foot back uh, porch area. And I kind of found an old piece of uh, flat material that I can make a frame jig out of. And I hand mitered my frame in that backyard. And then I throw it in the back of my pinot and drive into work and sneak it into the weld booth and weld the frame. You know, I mean... And that's kind of how it started. I can just picture that in the back of the Pinto. Yeah. Add some <laughs> yeah, class and then, to the story. And then I got to a point where we were making a few of them that I decided that I wanted to leave the test area. And so I said, you know, I'm going to go start this bike company. And they didn't want to let me go, but off I went. Yeah. Okay. So you, so you, so you started this bike company. Did you guys, like, did you guys start out right away by, by getting a, getting a location where you building in someone's garage or how did that work? Well, it first started out where, um, uh, my, my partner at the time, uh, Steve Blaylock, he was the, one of the original founders, he and he and myself, and he want he wanted to, uh, uh, have me design and build components because at the time, like Grafton products were coming out and they had all kinds of crazy anodized components and whatnot. And it was, it was just all the rage, you know, U.S. built, CNC machined bits and pieces. Yep. And so I said, sure, I'll do that. So I started out designing some hubs and a few other components. But I told Steve, I said, hey, why don't we build a frame that I can hang these on and we'll go to the show and we'll use the frame to sell our wares. And and he said, yeah, that's a great idea. And then we went to the show with frames and components and the frames took off. We got an order from a German distributor for 50 frames and we weren't building hubs anymore. And these were mountain bikes at this time. Yes. H- hardtail mountain bikes. Is that right? Hardtail mountain bikes. Hardtail mountain bikes. And, and, and was it Ventana? Man- mountain, mountain bikes, bikes USA. USA. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> yes, it was. And well, and that was one of the important things, right? I mean, our first big customer was going off to Germany. Wow. So yeah, USA was a big thing to them. They, they wanted us built components and frames. That's really cool. So was that the was that the Cone Peak then? Um, that was the Cone Peak. Yep. Okay, so that was the first. And that, I did the Cone Peak because Blaylock wanted an elevated chainstay bike, and I looked at it and went from an engineering standpoint, I didn't think an elevated chainstay bike was going to be easy to build or was going to be able to last. I figured it was going to break. Mm-hmm. Sure would help so, me. I'm trying to. I'm trying to um, visualize what what you mean by elevated chainstay. Okay, so the chainstays instead of coming from the dropouts right into the bottom bracket, yep, they come up above the chain rings. Oh, okay, I got you. Oh, interesting. And the, so that this cone six uh, was cone peak. Co- yeah, 
cone. Yeah, the, the cone peak was the first one. Okay, so yeah. let, hang. I'll give you a little backstory, and then you'll never forget. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, so Steve Blayock lived down in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a wilderness area in his area in, in his area called the Ventana Wilderness, and two of the mountains in the Ventana Wilderness were Cone Peak and Marble Peak. Oh. So those were the names of our first two models. Yeah. Okay, Cone Peak and Marble Peak. That makes sense. In the Ventana area, okay. So Cone Peak was an elevated chain stay bike. Steve wanted it. I figured it was going to be an engineering challenge and a fabrication challenge. So I designed and built a hardtail to go with it. Uh, I'm sorry, a, a standard double diamond frame hardtail to go with it. Yep. And that was the Marble Peak. And so, sure enough, the Cone oh. Peak was very difficult to build. Pretty highly sought after, but I think we only ever made about fifty of them. So, um, okay, so so who did the? Did you did you do the geometry on that bike? Yes. So, were you riding at that time as well? In like from BMX, and then kind of uh, moved over to mountain bikes, or how did you figure out geometry as as one of the pioneers in uh, in mountain biking? Yeah, that's okay. So. We're going to go back. We're going to wind back the machine here a little bit. <laughs> so when I was going to, to a college at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, I uh, had had been working at the fabrication shop for quite a while, and I would drive home on weekends. So I'd come down to school for the week, yep. and I'd drive home on weekends and work in the fab shop. It was a 300-mile drive each way. Good oh, Lord. But it made me enough money, and I got to come see my girlfriend. No. Who's now my wife. Oh, nice. So that's really why you were done. I mean, honestly. <laughs> I was for the money. <laughs> nice. Come on. Right. So anyway, so while I was down there, uh, I I met a guy that lived in the same apartment complex as myself, and he was building uh, fillet-brazed chromoly mountain bike frames in his garage in his in the apartment. We had a had an overhead. The apartment was above these single car garages. His name was Brian Bodette. And he, uh, you know, he, he'd been involved in mountain biking much longer than I had. And so I kind of leveraged him. I'd go down and see what he was doing and, and, you know, watch him labor over these Philip Ray's joints and, you know, kind of think to myself, Oh my God, I can't imagine putting that much labor into one of those things because he would spend. <laughs> a hundred hours buffing those welds or those braces. Wow. And so, so from a fab standpoint, it didn't make sense to me, but he understood what was going on back then, which was 69 degree or 70 degree head angles with a 72 degree seat angle, 11 and a half inch bottom bracket, 17 and a half inch, 18 inch chain stays. So the geometry was pretty well established for hardtails with no suspension forks. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to do the conversions to millimeters in my head right now because we do we talk about all those things in millimeters. I mean, obviously the degrees we don't, but but those were angles, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the I mean the chainstay and the you talked about oh, the chainstay chain chain right? yeah. reach and and all that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay, so that's that's kind of where you you learned the the geometry. That's part where of I learned. That. So so I I was building. I decided I wanted to build my my first mountain bike. So I said okay. I went down to uh, the reason I did is I went down to a bike shop in town and Ross bicycles had the very first mountain bike production in the area that you could buy. And I bought one and it was a total POS. Okay. <laughs> and I like, I rode a wheelie. I popped wheelies on all the time. And when I'd land, the forks would splay out. And so then I'd run into a wall to push them back. And 
You know, I'm just like, God, these things are not meant for actually riding. Yeah. But I knew how to make stuff. And I'm short. I was five, seven and a half. So I thought, I can't get a bike that fits me. I'm just going to build one. And I, and so I just jumped in and I went and, and sat down with Brian. I go, hey, I'm thinking about this, that, and the other. What do you think? And used him as a sounding board. And and off I went. I ordered some chromoly tubing and uh, parts kit out of, uh, the heck was the name of that bike? Uh, there was a mail order house that wasn't Cambria. It was before Cambria. Anyway, I ordered, I ordered my parts kit and then I built a bike for yourself to ride. And it was Chromoly and my nickname at the, yeah. Okay. I had a nickname then. (laughs) Dang it. I'm a liar. (laughs) Um, I, uh, when I was working at that fab shop and driving home on the weekends, uh, it was before NC Mills or before they were, they have proliferated a lot of different shops. And so uh, numerically controlled machines were very expensive and hard to get into shops. Right. But we were still building complex parts for aerospace companies. So they always landed out on my desk and said, Hey, we need you to make these parts. So I'd come up on weekends and I'd make these complex parts and I'd get four or five milling machines running and I'd just run between the two. And I made this big, massive pile of chips, a total mess. And then I'd leave. So I would, <laughs> Here's I your would part. meet with done, Someone else gets done to parts that they can inspect and pass and ship. And a total mess. <laughs> and so my nickname at the time was Dirtbag. And so my very first uh, steel mountain bike frames that I built, I called Dirtbags. Awesome. But I, only, I think I only built maybe 11 or 12 of them. And those were all chromoly. All chromoly. So what'd you do with the 11 or 12? Cause you rode one and you give them to your buddies or did you sell them? Yeah. I sold them to buddies, friends. I still have, I think I have three of them. Still. Oh, nice. That's awesome. So you mentioned the complex part. I think there's a quote in some of the other interviews you've done over the years, um, where it talks about you like taking a complex problem and figuring out, figuring out the simplest, most elegant solution to it. And uh, that incorporates just simple, which Josh and I are big on, just, you know, keeping everything simple. But then you throw in the elegant and the artistic part of it because your frames are, are really, uh, they're, they're engineered so well and they're, they're beautiful as well. And I was, I was curious at what point, you know, you started kind of getting, uh, I don't know, I guess adding the art into the, the frame or has always just been incorporated into your way of, of design and, and uh, building. Yeah, so that was a long process of building blocks being put in place. And it goes all the way back to back in my dick days in uh, (laughs) college metal shop where I was just really good at what I did. Mm -hmm. And then I said, you know what? I like how these things look. I'm going to do this, even though it's going to be more difficult because I like the way it looks. So I started figuring out how to do form, fit, and function, you know, all together. Mm -hmm. And, and try not to make choices that were just for one or the other. I tried to, tried to sort of. So you had the, say, you were so smart. You and so good. You had the fit and the function nailed. You're like, all right, now I'm going to bring some form into this. That's awesome. Into this equation. Yeah. So balance of form, fit and function and not, not let one uh, override the other. Uh, in, yeah. In and, the and to be honest, you know, 30 years at, at Ventana, that was probably to my detriment. Mm. Because I didn't build in obsolescence. I didn't make this year's bike better than last year's bike. I tended to 
break myself off by putting in so much effort into designing whatever the new release model was going to be. Mm-hmm. And then I would ride it out until it was long in the tooth and time to change. And, <laughs> you know, it was just really a real, real challenge. It, and that's because I always tried to build the best bike I could build, mm-hmm. not the best bike of this year that will be better next year. That was one of the quotes as well, where it says um, each new design has increasingly bigger shoes to fill. And I would, yeah. ima- I would imagine as uh you know, like you said, that would become a challenge at some point. Um, there was another question that someone had posed. Um, I think, well, time flies now, probably 15 years ago. And someone asked you about the, the technology, like how innovation is driving the form of bikes. And, um, I, I take it you still are involved with the mountain bike, like riding and that. Do you see any like major innovations, um, kind of going forward, which are moving the needle on the, in the mountain bike industry? I think the thing that's moving the needle more than anything is electric power. I yeah. think that, yeah. uh, you know, that's the, that's the winner, you know, uh, it, it, it's broadened the market base. I will bet five or tenfold. Oh, wow. So the elitist peddlers, <laughs> you know, have been marginalized, <laughs> you know, and you, you go out right anywhere now. And what do you see? You see an e-bike see someone out having fun, mm-hmm. you see someone that maybe you wouldn't have ever seen on that trail before, but they're, you know, they're enjoying life. And I think that's, that's, that's cool. probably the biggest innovation that I didn't really prepare for and didn't, didn't see coming. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll tell you something about Ventana. We built really fun and nice, elegant bikes, but I was never big enough to actually move the needle in the industry. I was always much more reactive to, What's out there that's current? What, you know, what, what head tube or headset diameter are we using? What's the axle spacing? What's the tire size? Uh, when I left Ventana five years ago, there were 17 wheel sizes, tire sizes. All right. I, I, I want to talk about wheel sizes, but I don't, I, I don't know if we're off that topic. <laughs> no, I, no, you're good. Go okay, ahead. Keep going. All right. So just one of the coolest I think things. Sherwood can figure out we go like kind of all over the place. Yeah, and there's not, sorry, there's not a straight line to the way we talk. Yeah, I apologize for that. <laughs> no, no, it's that's, us that's too, us. man. It's, it's us. us. <laughs> so, so Sherwood, um, your personal bike, you, you said that you rode the L, which your names are, are awesome, L Bastardo. But the, na- the one that you, it's my favorite name, but the one that you rode was L Chucho? El Chucho, yeah. yeah. So El Chucho, if you translate that, is Mutt. Oh, that's Mutt. Okay. Yeah. And it's a great name because, because you got in the back, it's you know, the 69, right? The 26 in the back, the 29 up front. Yeah. And your reasoning for that, to me, makes a lot of sense. But, you know, my, my bike age, is, as we mentioned, is like only three years. So I'm kind of new at this. But I, I was curious your take, if you still feel the same way, that like that's your personal go-to ride and um and how it yeah absolutely so i i mean i'll i'll give you a background of how i got there uh i i came fairly early with 29 inch bikes i adopted there was a guy named west willits out of colorado uh he or west williams he built willet bikes out of colorado he was one of the early pioneers of 29 inch wheels and i went out and rode with that guy and he was just a freaking hammer i mean he would ride a fixed gear 29er on all these Colorado single track trails and just rip it. Mm. So I'm like, Oh, those bikes are cool. You know, whatever. And I just kind of put it in the back of my head. And when I finally got to embracing the 29 inch wheels, I said, well, I'm all in, I'm going for it. 
So I built a four inch travel full suspension, uh, 29 er, uh, El Capitan, I think I called it at the time. Yep. And then I started riding it and I was pretty aggressive with it. And I found that the in corner traction of the 29 inch wheels was incredible. Traction would never really want to break traction. You would just carve a turn and go through. But when it finally did break traction, it was always the front tire. And it just put me on my head. And I was like, oh, this sucks. What's going on? Why am I such a dork? And so then I I started actually forcing the back tire to break loose first by locking the wheel. I'd lock the wheel, get it loose, and then it would drift in the corner and it behaved like I wanted it to behave. Mm -hmm. So then I got to thinking, I go, hmm, I wonder... If I used a smaller wheel, because I noticed when I was riding my 26-inch bikes that I could comfortably go through a turn with both wheels sliding, and I knew that the wheel that was going to slide out first was going to be the back wheel. So it's controllable when it does that. It doesn't put you on your head. So I thought, hmm, I'm going to put that on the back. I'm going to try this 29 in the front because I like how it corners. And sure enough, it was amazing. And then I took it down to Marin, and I rode some jumpy trail. I don't even remember what it was called. And I got in the air, and when I got airborne, I was blown away. The angular momentum of the big front wheel is makes it super stable in the front in the air, but the lower angular momentum of the rear wheel allows you to put it wherever you want to go. No kidding. So if you want to cross up and bring it back, you want to tap the side of a tree, you want to do whatever you want to do, you can totally do it, and I was absolutely blown away. I did not expect that. Wow. And that's how the dirt bikes are set up, right? Uh, like motorized yeah. dirt bikes. Yeah. yeah. Dirt bikes are, uh, yeah. 18 inch wheels in the back and 21 inch wheels in the front. I think Trek for a minute had the 96 or 69 or whatever they called it. Yeah, they did, but they did it with a horrible fork. Yeah. That, that, and Maver- it was a that Maverick like reverse. Yeah. Whatever, I mean, Maver- Maver- actually the Maverick fork rode really well, but it wasn't, it wasn't very tunable and it was hard to get parts for. Yeah. Um, you know, it looked cool. It definitely, it definitely it on a hardtail. Cool. They put it on a hardtail. They put it out to market the way Trek puts things out to market, big, large volume, get a bunch out there. Yep. And people didn't like it because they didn't market it the way it was good. And so it took, and I think what, uh, they had a pro racer riding it. They, you know, they, they tried to go that avenue and they didn't market, I think, the way it would go. And like I say, I never really moved the needle. I couldn't talk loud enough. I couldn't tell enough people how good it was. So the industry seems to have settled a bit. I mean, I think 29ers is, is most common for some of the bigger gravity bikes. You'll see what they call mullet bikes. And those are yep. 29 and 27, five in the back. Yep. Um, but for, you know, cross country bikes or anything other than like your kind of big enduro or downhill bikes, I haven't seen anything that's mixed wheel like that, at least in production lately. Yeah. Yep. That's true. So what, what, uh, so what, and we're, I, we're jumping all over the place, but I guess that's just what's, what it's going to be. What, what suspension design were you guys using on those, on those full suspension bikes? <laughs> well, there was a, there was a lot of, uh, turmoil about suspension pivots and mm-hmm. patents and who designed what and what worked better and what pedaled better and this, that, and the other. Yep. And I liked the way a single pivot bike pedal. So I basically have, in general, a single pivot swing arm with a rocker-driven suspension shock. 
So, so the rocker does the cornering stiffness and the swing arm still swings in an arc. So you position the front pivot where you want it. You position the rear pivot as close to the, to the uh, dropouts as you can. And then the rockers, all, everything about the rocker has to do with how you drive the shock. So the, and, the single pivot. And that yep. probably kept you out of all the, the patent BS as well. I yeah, it did, but it wasn't, it wasn't really why I did it. Yeah. I was small. I couldn't afford to, I wasn't big enough for, to be appetizing to, to some of the people that were licensing suspension. Yep. Cause they're like, well, I wait, I can license it to, you know, specialize or whoever. Yep. Uh, and they're going to sell, you know, 30,000 bikes and I'm going to sell 300. So, um, you know, it was, a uh, uh, that, and also I just didn't like the way they rode. You know, you would ride one of those bikes and, and sure, in the parking lot, they pedal awesome, right? You don't get any pedal feedback and you ride over a curb and you're like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. But what I like to do is I like to go really fast. And if I get a rock garden going, I try and hit the first rock, land in the middle and keep pedaling. And uh, one of the suspension designers had a patent and I was talking to him and I go, well, what happens when you pedal? And you're going through that kind of stuff. You just, oh, nobody pedals past 30% compression. I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. And then it was <laughs> yeah. the same argument for climbing. Well, nobody pedals when you're, you know, doing this, that, or the other. Or you need to use a small chain ring for, for in order to make the suspension effectively lock out or, you know, give you anti-squat or whatever you want to call it. Yep. I like the way the single pivot worked. I could you know, get around. Uh, uh, I, I liked everything about it. And so that's why I stuck with it. Mm-hmm. Hey, what was the, what was the biggest year for Ventana when you were there? Like, like number of frames or however you want to quantify it. Oh, what's the largest quantity? Yeah. Oh, I, mean, I don't know. I don't, I just, ra- just round numbers. numbers. I mean, is it 500? Probably is it 5,000? I mean, what I, is it? I think, well, one year, I think we built 6,000 bikes one year, but most of those weren't Ventanas. Like we built a thousand bikes for Tomac bikes one year. Mm-hmm. We probably did, I don't know, six or 800 Ellsworth that year. Um, you know, we, we, we built for a lot of different people. And, and yeah. So tell us about your manufacturing facility. Was it, was it there in California? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, it started out in the garage at a, at a house I was renting. It was a one car garage and we had a milling machine, a workbench, a welder, uh, and, uh, you know, whatever else we needed to make bikes. And when we fabbed them, we'd stack them in the driveway because we, or we'd hang them in the rafters and, uh, I'd have three or four people in there working. And, uh, it was a single phase garage. So I put a, a phase converter to run my mill and, uh, Every once in a while, you'd pop that breaker. So the, so the welder, Mark Perkins, was welding for me at the time. So he and I were had worked together in a fab shop as welders. And so that was the Yo Isaac. So Isaac would be on the mill, mitering tubes or doing whatever he was doing on the mill. And the breaker was behind the mill. <laughs> Yo Isaac so He'd have pops to give me the way back there and trip the breaker. So... Whenever he'd hear the yo Isaac, he knew he had to go trip that breaker. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, so so okay, keep going. How, how'd you build up from so, there? So so we built. I'm going to say we built about a hundred frames out of that little garage. 
uh, I don't know if it was a year or two year span. Um, but we'd build the frames. Then we would load them up, drive them to Hayward, which was uh, down in the Bay Area from Sacramento. It's a hundred and some mile drive yep. to heat treat them. Then we would wait around until they came out of the oven and they quenched them. And they would, they had them on a rack and they'd put them in the oven and heat them up to a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. Then they'd pull them out on the rack, wheel them out to the parking lot and take a garden hose with an air hose hooked to it and spray the frames down to give it. That's how they, quen- putting that's how they quenched it. I'm putting in air quotes, a quick quench. Okay. And so, and then, and at that point, then you've got a little bit of time where you can align them. They're very soft. Yeah. And before they turn into a T4 uh, temper condition. And then they would age them overnight for eight hours at 350 degrees to get to the T6 temper. And then we would pick them up from the heat treater in the morning and then drive them down to Santa Cruz and have them powder coated. So were you aligning them there in the parking lot? Like after they, yeah, yeah, I had a a frame jig, had a frame jig in in the back of my pinot Uh and we'd uh, pull it out and straighten the frames and, and, uh, and then give them back. And it was, you know, with like 15 frames or, you know, I I don't even know if we ever did 20 frames at the time per per batch, but small enough around. But then we, we had a, uh, Steve Blayhawk um, developed this process of uh, tinted clear powder coats over hand brushed aluminum. And so uh, we adopted that when, when I bought him out and took sole uh, ownership of Ventana. And we said, yeah, we got to keep doing this, this uh, finish. And part of it was because in our magazine article, Zapata Espinosa said it shone like a jewel in the sun or whatever it was. So, so we're like, oh shit, everybody had to have that finish. Mm-hmm. And when I say everybody, it was a very small following, but we had some core mail order places like Cambria Bikes sold a lot of a lot of our bikes and whatnot. So yep. you know, the people that knew and wanted our bikes, you know, they got them. And our hardtails were twelve hundred and fifty dollars back in you know nineteen ninety one. That's a lot of money. Yeah. If you do a, a, a comparison, it's it's amazing amount of money. Yeah, but you had a following, a cult following, and then uh, yeah, kind of kind of little cultish following. Yeah. And so, then, how, so how did that? So you, so you mentioned this when in our in our chat, our text back and forth about this brushed aluminum and the candy coat paint finish. You know, talk to us about a little bit about that. What was unique about that? So what was unique about it is, uh, and and Steve came up with it. But we uh, we used Scotch Brite pads, and we would brush the tubes, uh, you know, in a cylinder around the tubes. So so radially around the tubes, but where the tubes intersected at the head tubes, we actually ran those. We actually hand blended so that it the brushing for each tube was cylindrical to each tube. So there was a whole bunch of different handwork at the head tube, down tube interface chain stays, all of that. And so we spent a lot of time doing that. And in the summers. So you're actually with like, like you're actually with like brushes, like metal brushes. No, no, a uh, Scotch bright pad. Oh, like a Scotch. Okay. Okay. I got you. You said yeah. that. I, I guess I, I didn't, yeah. I didn't, but, but you couldn't just willy nilly brush it. You had yeah. to pay attention to the grain that you were putting down. Again, it goes back to the, f- not form function. The, the artwork part of it, right? The aesthetics. Yeah, elegant solution. Yeah. 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 But, but the difficulty became in the summer, 
when your hands are sweaty, you leave stains on the material. So we started having troubles with that. And then we were having the heat treater etch the frames first. And that goes a little bit quicker for brushing, but it also was a two day delay to wait for them to process. So where I was getting with that is we would pick the frames up from the heat treater in the morning in my brother's Dodge van. My brother lived in Alaska and he bought a Dodge van and it lived at my grandma's house. And I commandeered it while he wasn't using it. <laughs> this is a uh, forest? Forest, yeah. Okay. And I commandeered it for about three years and he never drove it. So anyway, so in this Dodge van, Shout we had a forest, rack in yeah. the back and we'd put these frames on there. And Isaac would sit in the back of the van while I drove to Santa Cruz. And his goal was to get all the frames brushed before we got to, to Tad's house so he could powder coat them. Oh, he would work on them in the back of the Dodge van? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Dude, this is quite a labor of love. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, so when you were building like th- that process you walked through, was this fun for you guys? Like, yo, Isaac... And uh, I can't remember the other guy's name, uh, the welder. It wasn't oh, a Mark. Yeah, was it a job? Was yeah, it a, was, was it a grind, or were you were you digging it at the time? It was both. So in order to be ready to take fifteen frames to a heat treat, to heat treat, we would schedule the day, and that would mean we worked almost all night the night before to get everything ready because you, you know you're not going to do any work on the frame on the way down, so you had to do. All the work to the frame had to be, you know, everything had to be welded on, had to be inspected, checked, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that was always, uh, you know, very uh, stressful. Yeah, just set, know, set, yeah, that, we deadline, it, set but, that deadline for it, yourself. It, yeah. It, well, yeah. you know, after 30 years of Intona, I, I can honestly say I had about an 80% job satisfaction, which is really good. <laughs> but yeah. the other 20% sucked. 80, 80, really bad. 80, I think I would take an 80-20 right yeah, now. 80-20. That sounds, that sounds great to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but, you know, every once in a while you'd be running, you know, 120-hour weeks. Yeah. Oh, man. Like getting ready for a trade show was a brutal, a brutal spin for sure. I bet you, you guys go, you guys go to Interbike? Yes. I bet you I've met you before. I, I bet you I've met you at Interbike a couple times. That's interesting. Uh, so um that's how memorable I am folks. <laughs> uh, nice. So but uh you know we mentioned the cult following. One of the programs you had and I don't know if it's you know still ongoing but where someone wanted to trade trade theirs in uh for the next kind of generation or updated bike. Um how many people like took advantage of that uh who rode Ventana? I would say 40%. Wow. How did that, how did that program work? So someone could that had a Ventana and cracked it or crashed it or didn't like the color or just thought it was long in the tooth or they wanted to change wheel size or fork geometry or you name it. Mm-hmm. We allowed them to trade in the frame in any condition and get 30% off on whatever new frame they wanted. Yeah. And what did you guys do with all those frames you collected? We usually just hacked them up and tossed them in the recycle bin. Sometimes, though, we would repurpose them out to local police departments and things of that sort because they wanted to have bikes, this and that. And and so we would, you know, send a few of them out. It wasn't really a cash thing. We weren't trying to take the bikes and resell them. 
but we, you know, aluminum fatigues. It's going to break. Someday it's going to break. Just what aluminum does. So uh, my thought was, you know, let's get them off the street. Let's get people on new bikes. Let's get them happy and out, you know, moving along. And, uh, and again, remember what I said, I tried to build the best bike I could. So my bikes would last a long time and I would get calls from people. I've been riding this bike for 20 years and I just love it. Oh my gosh, it broke. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not warranting it, but <laughs> yeah. I have this trading program. That's awesome. <laughs> Let me help you. So spe- speaking of, of miles on a bike, there's a story. I don't know if it was Steve who went, um, enough miles to go what was it, around the globe and one and a half times or something and changed out 40 or 50 tires. Um, I can't place where I read that. Do you know what that story is referring to? It was, but it was on one of your, one of your frames. Oh, well, hmm. there's a lot of people that would, a lot of tandems went long distances. Okay. I'd get calls from people in Romania that had broken their swing arm and they'd been on this 6,000 mile tour and they needed a swing arm and why did it break? Mm-hmm. And we would overnight them a swing arm and, you know, get it to them. There's a, a guy named Oliver, I think, from uh, from New Zealand. He he won the the uh, Tour Divide race on one of our single speeds. Oh, nice. I don't know how many miles he rode on that, but, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of people that rode a lot. So, so uh, I, my buddy Mark and I, we rode from Alaska to Montana on our Ventanas. That's quite a with ride. no no pre riding. No pre-training, just, oh, hey, let's build some new bikes. Oh, awesome. And we showed up there unfit with 100 pounds of gear and blew our knees out in two weeks. Spent two weeks rehabbing them and then kept going. I bet you were fit by the time you finished that ride. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I could ride for 12 hours nonstop. What was that? A, how was that experience? Was it like something you do again or um – any yeah, I would, you know, I'm old now, so I don't know if I would do it again. But yeah, it was it was amazing. You know, it's it was before cell phones, you know, or anything. But you really were disconnected, and and you got to see the country, and it was pretty awesome. I got to say, yeah, that's really cool. Oh, we could do a whole podcast probably just on I, that trip. Yeah, that's like, interesting. Yeah, I, I got some more uh, Ventana questions for you. How how did you get into Building and I'm sorry if I cut you off, brother man. This is how we go here. <laughs> how, how did you get into building for other people? Like, how, how did you get into being an OEM manufacturer for other other companies? Well, it started when this guy named Dave Turner called me up one time and said, "Hey, I need someone to make me a bike. I need 150 of these bikes." He had this new frame design he wanted to do. It was a full suspension bike, had a horse link suspension. Yep. He'd work for Horse Lightner. He raced for Specialized. I'm not sure who else he raced for. He was a cross country and downhill racer and he wanted to do his own bike brand. And so he came to me and came to several other builders and selected down, selected me. And so off we went. So I built a couple prototypes and, and then we started doing production. So it started with, with Turner and, and uh, I assume that's the Turner brand branded frames. Yes. And then you you had mentioned a couple others, Ellsworth. I can't remember who else you mentioned. And I know some of them you can't talk about because you've got it. Yeah, well, I mean, I I built for Fat Chance. I built for... uh, There's a whole list on the website. Uh, Actually, I think I might have a list here. Hang on a second. See if I can find my list. 
Oh, he's got a. You yeah, got, I've he, got the yeah, list Mike's here. Mike uh, Sherwood, right here. Uh, Allied, Auburn, uh, Bushnell, Fat, yeah, you Felt, even. Wow, Gag. Yeah, Felt Racing, Franco Bikes, Gag, Hammerhead, HPC, Moots, Koski, Kona, KHS, Carpiel, MTB Tandems, Nemesis, Pisani, Rotec, Rubicon, Solid Bikes, Tomac Bikes. So that was so, so. What percentage of your business was like like building for other people, and what percentage was building for Ventana? It, it really ebbed and flowed. Sometimes we were only building OEM stuff, and sometimes we were only building Ventanas. Uh, again, I was never very good about tooting my horn and growing my market, so it kind of went at its own cadence. So sometimes we were making a lot of frames, and sometimes we weren't. But but the one thing that was steady was that you were making good frames, no matter who you were making yes. them for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with oh, your... yeah, another one is Squid Bikes. Do, um, do you remember what Ellsworth frames you made? Uh, uh, Truth Dare, Joker. Uh, what did you Truth have, Dare, Josh? Joker. Do you remember? No, Ace, Deuce, and Joker was the Eon Bikes. That was a brand that he and I were trying to do together. Yeah, Truth, and then Truth, the, Dare. Uh, Truth Dare and Joker were Ellsworth Bikes. Yeah, and Joe. Yeah, I had a I had yep. an Epiphany twenty nine inch full suspension. It was kind of the when they yeah we I think we were I think we were building Ellsworth before twenty nine inch wheels came about. Right on. So made in the USA, as we've mentioned, is very important. Uh, we feel, and when you were building bikes and frames. Did you feel a lot of the pressures coming from overseas kind of production or you just kind of, you know, just stayed the course, did your thing and, you know, had your niche in the, in the market. Uh, I was just curious what it was like to be, cause there are probably only a handful of bike manufacturers in the United States, you know, truly when the big like, Asian manufacturing thing was yeah. coming in. That, yeah. That was that time. Yeah. So that's a little bit of a long story, but I'll I'll go back to the very first uh, magazine uh, picture we had. We had a, a one-page little clip of, hey, this is an up-and-comer, and it was a picture of our uh, one of our early cone peaks, and it was in mountain bike action. Nice. And I was like, oh, cool, man. Our, you know, our bitching artwork is on there, our <laughs> rideable art, right? Right on. And so, and I looked at the magazine, and the center spread, two-page spread – was for a bike brand, aluminum welded bike brand, supposedly made in the USA. And right in the center of the photo is a big pinhole in the weld. Gigantic. Wow. And I was like, well, that's not right. And so I really uh, took took a lot of time and effort to make sure that our welds look the way they should look. You know, you always finish the welds on the non-drive side of the bike. Your stops and starts need to look like welds, not stops and starts. You know, all of those things. And that was because I came from that long history of fabrication right. and wanting to build better and better stuff. And there was never an A weld and a B weld. It was always today's weld and tomorrow's better weld. And so, uh, you know, I, I've met welders uh, throughout my history who, you know, s- some are that way and some are like, oh, no, there's an A weld and there's a B weld. And I'm like, no, there isn't. And so for me, it was the execution that got me going. And I was one of the early uh, successful aluminum welders, you know, as much noise as I could make being a small builder. 
I, I you know, I kind of made it. I had uh, some Chinese folks try and approach me to come over and teach them how to weld. And I declined. So early on, most people didn't want Chinese built frames. And, you know, I, I grew up in the sixties and back then it was kind of the same way about Japanese products. They said, Oh, these Japanese products are horrible. Don't go Japanese, blah, blah, blah. Now look at some of the best cars come from Japan, you know, you know, mm-hmm. electronics. So the infrastructure gets there, the technology gets there, then all of a sudden they're running faster than we are. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened with China and the introduction of carbon frames and wheels in the U.S. That was kind of the death nail of, of really the American built aluminum frames because, you know, we couldn't compete with what they were delivering. And carbon frames are labor intensive. There's a lot of finish hours and dust breathing and figuring out how to paint and chemicals. And there's a lot involved with building the carbon frames. And if you have to do it somewhere where you have to keep your, your exhaust clean and your garbage clean and all of that stuff, you can't buy the materials for the same cost you can get there and your labor is more expensive. You cannot compete in building carbon. So Josh, you say you got a, a U.S. built carbon frame. Good on you. Yeah, I'll bet you if you went and asked them, they're not making any money. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the story of Girly Gravity is pretty interesting, man. And if you if you have a minute, I can send you some links. They're, they're doing something different uh, with with thermoplastic, um, and and they've got a a, a a really really they cut the the labor intensive part down significantly. Um, Are they using wound tubes and lugs? Nope, they're not using wound tubes and lugs. Um, I'm not going to speak like I really fully understand it, but um, they took a, a different type of carbon fiber. I think I think it's thermoset versus thermoplastics, and they use the thermoplastics. And this was a, a technology that, that Boeing developed, and it's kind of the next generation of of, uh, of carbon. And uh, <clears throat> figured out a way to make that into a tube. They they mold those together, and and they can. I think it's like a, a, a tenth of the time or something like that. Don't quote me. Go 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 do the research for our listeners yeah. on, oh, good. on gorilla gravity. But, but uh, yeah, I just, just to be honest with you, I'm a, you can see this cause we're on zoom and you can see the pics, the, you can see me here, but I'm a, I'm a big dude. And uh, these are really big, beefy, burly frames. That's kind of why I rode Ellsworth back in the day as well. Cause I broke every other frame that I had. Um, and those Ellsworth would, uh, would hold me in the same thing with these gorilla gravity. So uh, yeah, all us. Uh, sure. Would tell us, man, like, so, so, you left five years ago. Tell us, tell us why you left and what's going on with Fantana now. Well, so um, about six years ago, my wife, who's an engineer, and she's worked at Aerojet for a long time. She was getting a job uh, out at Raytheon. She was going to do a job switch because Aerojet was wanting to get her to move to Southern California. And she said, hey, what are you doing? What's your exit strategy? And, you know, fine box in the back didn't work. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, she kind of said, hey, why don't you dust off your resume and go get a real job? And so uh, the whole idea was to sort of angle toward having some retirement and whatnot. So even though I liked what I was doing, it was a grind mm-hmm. and it was wearing on me. Yeah. And like I say, the, the when the Chinese fabrication became kind of socially accepted, it became very difficult to compete with the pricing that they could 
Sure. Especially at a small, as a small builder. So I was going to scuttle it. I was just going to, you know, hunt Ventana, sell the inventory, move it out. And my business manager, Teresa Franco, who's been a close friend of my wife's and mine for a long time. She said, no, I want, I want to keep it, take it on, you know, and, and go with it. I said, okay, cool. So she's a full owner now and she's been running it since I left and she's still selling bikes and, and whatnot. And I'm still designing bikes for her kind of on the side, just, you know, just to help. So. Well, that's super cool, man. Very nice. Who's still coming up? But as far as bikes go, I'm not really riding them anymore. Oh, no. I ride motorcycles. Oh. I ride motorcycle trials and that's my passion and I love it. What, what? What are motorcycle trials? <laughs> do you know what that I is? do know what it is, but yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm sure it would tell us a story. So find a rock pile and some logs, put some ribbons out. Oh, I've seen that. Say, oh, I'm going to score how many times you touch your feet. Yeah, that is insane. And it's it, fun. Yeah, they don't have a seat, if I remember, right? Yeah, that's true. Oh, th- wow. Yeah, so, so it's like doing a thousand squats. <laughs> <laughs> but you know if you go to the internet and you google moto trials mm-hmm. and you see what they're doing yep. dumb that down about six levels and that's me <laughs> and i'm a pretty decent rider at my skill set but yeah. you know i'm not youtube friendly at all do you compete yes oh that's super cool man i would t- i never would have guessed that you were a moto trials guy yeah. that's funny yeah, really cool. Good for you to have something to, to do. Who's coming up with all the cool names still on the website? They're available. That's Teresa. That's Teresa. Okay. Yeah. So so that all started. We used to go to this. So we used to have this thing called Ole. Mm-hmm. And so we used to go to this restaurant called Ole Mexico. It was a little burrito place in town. Mm-hmm. And we'd eat these. We'd ride our bikes over. It's about a mile and a half away. We'd ride our bikes over for lunch. We'd eat burritos, big old fat mono burritos. And then we'd ride back and... All the rest of the day, all the employees are just going, oh, because they're just worked over from the big, you know, monster burritos. But we said it so much. And then uh, my friend Robert, who I raced tandems with, he started kind of, he was, a, he has a, a, he's a very high energy, you know, likable, uh, affable person. And he started saying, Olay for just things like someone would go by and be like, Olay, and it stuck. And so then, People were, uh, you know, saying it, and we went out and did some things called Dirt Camp out in Colorado, teach some folks how to ride bikes and whatnot, and Ole kind of stuck, and one of the campers said, hey, you ought to make that into a T-shirt. And so I went back and said, all right, let's make some T-shirts. And so we kind of ran that for a while, and and uh, locally, you'll still hear Ole for Ventana riders when they come around. It's pretty fun. Oh, that's super cool. That's a great story. Hey, Sherwood, um, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? For this? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, we're just getting started. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're about it. It's been an, fun. Yeah, man, we're about in an hour. We, we definitely appreciate, um, you know, hearing about your writable art and your story and made in the United States and what you did for the, for the, for the mountain bike scene. For 30 and, years. And not just for Ventana, but now we learned, you know, you made a lot of the, frames for a lot of the iconic companies that um that are, are a big part of uh cycling history man it's it's pretty awesome man it's been great to to chat with you here man thank you so much for your time brother yeah thank you and my my final thought is the um 
I can't get enough of the sidecar. The side hack? The side the hack. BMX side yes, hack. I, I, We're definitely going to make one of those, man. Yeah, I'm so excited <laughs> to try that. That's awesome. Hey, brother, I'm going to go ahead and uh, shut down the recording here in a second, but you can stay out. We can, we can talk for a minute off here. Okay. All right, cheers.